I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Livewire, everyone. I'm Luke Burbank. How's it going? Hope you've been having a great week. Uh, This episode of the show, we are talking about hidden talent, which I guess is one way to describe this kind of crazy event that happened in the theater where we recorded the show this week, the Neptune Theater in Seattle. Um, The day of the show, I, I happened to see in the local paper an account of what had gone on, and I I couldn't wait to (laughs) tell the crowd about this. You know what? Let's just pick things up on stage. Uh, Take a listen. We have a really exciting show for you. I know that you are going to thoroughly enjoy yourself, but in the interest of managing your expectations, I need to tell you that however well it goes over the course of the next hour, it is not going to be the most exciting thing that has happened this week here at the Neptune Theater. I'm not, listen, I'm not saying that to diminish our fine public radio show. I am saying that because on Tuesday night, a few short days ago, during a Damien Marley concert, a woman gave birth in the bathroom here at the Neptune Theater. It was at approximately 9.20 at night. I don't know if she was waiting for a song that she was only so-so on. But she, she went into the woman's restroom, and she had her sister with her. And actually, I'll just read from this TV report that interviewed the sister, the sister who didn't have the baby. The sister said, she was like, sister, I need you. And I was like, wait, let me take off my rings because I don't want to scratch the baby with these rings. That's day one of obstetrics school, is take the rings off. Um, The sister uh, continued, quote, so I take the rings off, I put them on the sink, and when I turned around... The baby was in her arms. 
I don't want to be hypercritical of the one sister because I know she was doing her best. But I feel like that might be too many rings. Like if someone can birth a small human in the time it takes you to take the rings off, maybe two less rings would be the right amount of rings for you when you go out for the night. Um, the, uh, the TV station also interviewed some of the folks working here that night at the Neptune, and they interviewed a, a custodian who described the scene when the woman came out of the bathroom, which sounds like it was kind of amazing. Uh, the guy said, she was like in the stretcher, and the little baby was right there, and she was like, yeah, and the crowd cheered. Now, I need to level with you, public radio listeners. There's no way we can beat that. <laughs> that is just not going to be happening over the course of this radio recording. Um, unless, is anybody in the audience pregnant? <laughs> Do we have anybody who's pregnant? Is there anybody who's a couple weeks late? <laughs> it's like it could go... So much for that plan, I guess we're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. We're going to have to just make an awesome radio show. We can't use the gimmickry of a live birth during the event. So let's get rolling with that show, why don't we? Our first guest, Ton Tan, and I go way back. Uh, we worked at the same public radio show in L.A. many years ago. Uh, I thought I was a pretty cool guy because I had just become a reporter there, and Tan was the intern. She was kind of just starting out. Um, but even then, her talent was on full display, which is perfect this week because our theme is hidden talent. And Tan's talent wasn't hidden. It was right out there. Um, since those days, when she and I worked together in L.A., Tan has worked in TV. She's contributed to This American Life and The New York Times. And she even landed a spot on the editorial board of The Seattle Times. Um, I spent those years mostly quitting slash being fired from various media opportunities. So I think you could say it's gone pretty well for both of us. Tan's latest project is Second Wave. It's a new podcast from KUOW exploring the Vietnamese American experience. Please welcome the multi-talented Tan Tan to Livewire. Tan Tan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's start with your story, your family's history. When did your family leave Vietnam? My mom and dad escaped in October of 1978. And where did they escape from? Like, what part of the country were they living in? What was kind of the scene for them at that time? So my dad had been um, a lieutenant in the South Vietnamese Army, and after the war ended in April 1975, um, he continued to be a teacher, but then he was also forced to go to prison, re-education camp for a while, came out and made a decision that he was going to flee the country. He didn't feel like he was able to be free. So he transferred to a school in a tiny little fishing village in like the most southernmost part of Vietnam uh, with my mom. And um, from there, they taught a class for about a month and a half. 
they abandoned the students and escaped on a boat and got to Malaysia. We're there for six months in a refugee camp and we're sponsored and able to relocate here to Olympia, Washington. Um, one of the things that you talk about on the podcast is the narrative that you kind of grew up with. The narrative about the Vietnam War, the narrative about being a Vietnamese American. What was that like story that you were being constantly told? Um, I grew up with my mom and dad being very Vietnamese at home. So I always had my feet in sort of two worlds. So at home, I was super Vietnamese, spoke Vietnamese, you know, war Vietnamese, ao yais, all of that. But my idea of Vietnam once I got outside the home was a little different, and it was influenced by whatever my parents could get their hands on in terms of anything that said Vietnam. So, you know, my dad watched Platoon, and I was probably like five or six when that um, was on television. So. So, so even though these were movies that were created by like white American dudes, and it was their probably inaccurate view of what that conflict was like. In the Tan household, this is what was being consumed? Yes, Oliver Stone was my Vietnam education. Um, so, you know, for a long time, for me, Vietnam was just this other place. I wasn't born there, and it was rice paddies, helicopters, soldiers, women with accents, sex. So, you know, to me, it's like it was kind of whatever America kind of forced on us. And I also felt like we had to be really gracious, though. Like, my dad would take us to the Vietnam Wall in Olympia all the time. We'd lay flowers there. He was, he was like, we have to thank America for giving this, us this opportunity to be free. Which, you know, and so I grew up with that narrative. I never thought about the root causes of that war, why it was going on, the fact that we sided with the Americans during that period and ended up paying the ultimate price for it. You know, and I just didn't think about things it wasn't that complex to me. Um, this is Livewire from PRI. We're talking to Tan Tan, who is the host of the new podcast, Second Wave. Um, when did that narrative start to change for you? Uh, so I think it started to change in 2009 because my father was involved in this crazy court case where he was falsely accused by fellow Vietnamese refugees of being a Viet Cong agent. You know, He what? was accused of being... yes. Viet Cong, which would yes. have been the spies that were from North Vietnam, yes. the, the people fighting to keep the communist yes. state in we're power. Yes, we're infiltrating the South um, during the war. And basically, he was accused of being a communist. And, um, which in was, 2009, in Olympia, Washington. In 2009, in Olympia, Washington. And this is I don't like, know if my voice <laughs> is conveying how shocking this is. But this doesn't seem like a thing that should be happening it, yeah, here no, in 2009. It was, it, was, it was modern McCarthyism. And the thing is that to my dad, so he filed a defamation suit. And, you know, here in the United States, we file defamation suits because we think that somebody has said something about us in a public forum and shows reckless disregard for the truth. But my, to my dad, it was about, I've got to prove I'm not a communist. And this ate him up for about 10 years. That... And you were subpoenaed to testify that yes. basically your dad is not a communist spy. Yeah, so this case had been going on. Um, he filed a lawsuit in like 2005, and I didn't know about it until 2009, when all of a sudden we're like, hey, we need you to come back to Olympia and testify, you know? And I was like, what for? And they're like, we'll tell you when you get here, you oh. know? And so, <laughs> uh, so it was a little bit of a shocker. Um, but yeah, and then that was like a two-week re-education basically because my dad had to relive every moment he had to talk about who he was before the war ended he had to talk about what happened to him after and you know more or less prove that he was not a communist and um that was very painful for me and i think that was probably the moment being in the courtroom facing my dad also facing his accusers and realizing that the vietnam war is not over so even though the physical fighting is over clearly there are still mental wounds and um even among you know the vietnamese people 
people. And we haven't talked about it. We haven't had a forum to talk about it. And so I, you know, ever since then, I've sort of had this feeling in my mind that you know, perhaps this is a case of victims re-victimizing, people who've been traumatized. They haven't talked about it, and they've got to blame somebody. You know? And in this case, unfortunately, the person they blamed was my, my dad. Why do you think that your parents' generation, and you talk about this a lot on the podcast, are really hesitant to discuss what happened uh, during the war in Vietnam, and then also just any of the non-great parts of their experience as Vietnamese Americans? I think that when trauma happens, it's so close to a lot of the people of my parents' generation. It's so close to them that they just can't talk about it. The, the famous Napalm Girl photo, that is my mom and dad's home village. Um, they this is the photo of a young girl. She's naked and she's yeah. running down a, a road, basically. She's, she's running down a road, and my uncle was in the South Vietnamese military and was killed on that same in that same village down the road from where that little girl was a year before that. And it's just, and then you come here, and really the way that America treats refugees, when you come here, it's not just like you know, now everything's rosy and you're great. It was really, come here, learn to speak English, get a job, you know, um, there's no time to waste. And my parents didn't want to waste time. So they really focused on trying to adjust and they kind of put that behind them. We have to take a short break. This is Livewire from PRI, coming to you from the Neptune Theater this week. We have Ton Tan here from the Second Wave Podcast and we will be back in just a moment. Hey, have you ever thought about starting your own Livewire? Um, well, you're going to need some stuff if you want to do that. You're going to need a theater. You're going to need a house band. Maybe you got friends that are good, you know, with instruments or something. Uh, you got to get a live audience there. Um, you need microphones. Like, microphones are a huge part of what we do week in and week out. Um, I don't know where you're going to get all of that stuff. I would say just probably go on the internet and search for it. Um, but the easy part about making your own live wire would be getting the chair and also the desk that I use when I am making the show because we get those from Fully. And you can go to Fully's website right now or if you're in Portland, you can stop in to their retail location and get yourself some amazing stuff that will help your productivity, it will help your health. Uh, their website is Fully.com. They're a Portland company. They've been helping Livewire out for years and years. And they make the Jarvis sit-stand desk that I use when I'm doing the show. And they also sell the Capisco chair that I use uh, when I'm hosting the show. In fact, when I'm at my house recording stuff, as I am right now, I sit on a TikTok stool from Fully. All of this stuff is designed to keep you engaged, to keep you creative, to keep you productive, even when you're in a, a sort of work environment. It's been great for me. It's been great for the Livewire staff. They redid our offices there in Portland. Uh, so if you want to find out more about what Fully does, head over to fully.com slash Livewire, and you're like one or two steps closer to having your own radio show. Good luck with that. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. Uh, we're at the Neptune Theater in Seattle this week. Our theme is Hidden Talent, and we are here with Ton Tan, host of the new podcast Second Wave, which uh, really looks into the life of the kids of people who came over uh, during and after the Vietnam War. Um, I remember I was friends with one particular Vietnamese American kid and his dad spoke no English. And the kid spoke great English because their brains are just more flexible and he had kind of adopted the culture. And what I witnessed was a weird power dynamic where the kid was really the dad's like connection to the wider world. In a weird way, he was kind of in charge because he was like holding all the information. 
was that a very common thing? And like, what does that do to a family structure? Oh, I think that's so common. You know, on the one hand, it's like I, we owe our parents so much because they had the courage to leave Vietnam, however they did, and most of them are refugees. And to come here, and, you know, they work so hard, and they just, you know, we, the children, we're very privileged because a lot of us, we learned the language, we went to school here, we were educated here. And, you know, I think that's a very relatable experience for a lot of people. I would proofread. Uh, papers, you know, for my parents, you know, and, and you kind of, you don't even think about it. It's just second nature. My parents could help me with math, but they couldn't help me with anything else in school. And yet the expectation was, you're going to figure it out and you're going to succeed. You don't have a choice. And I kind of thank them for that. I mean, it was hard, you know, at the time, but um, I think that's an experience that anybody who has a parent who came from somewhere else will be able to relate to. It's not just about, you know, we were Vietnamese, so we were different or special. Um, the Vietnam and the Vietnam War is kind of back in the consciousness of a lot of folks because there's this uh, documentary that's playing on PBS. It's uh, uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Um, you interviewed them for your podcast, Second Wave. Uh, two things I want to ask you about. One, you were talking about that uncle of yours who was from that village where the, the young girl who's famously known as Napalm Girl was from, and he died. And as you were talking about it with, with these filmmakers, I thought I heard you getting emotional, like having a bit of a hard time. Did I mishear that? Or was that a hard thing? And overall, has this podcast been hard for you because of that? Yes, it gets very emotional. Um, even early on, like when I was a, a journalist, you know, in my early years, I never, I didn't want to be the Asian reporter. Like, I didn't want to be like Trisha Takanawa, you know, like I did From not. From Family Guy. Yeah, you know, so you kind of deny it. You just, you know, I'm like, I just want to be an American journalist who covers other people's problems, you know, and so, but, you know, be, since my dad had his case and all this stuff happened, for me, it was like, okay, I've got to, I've got to process this and I've got to deal with it, you know, somehow. So, you know, I have started to think about certain stories like my uncle and it was very emotional um, to talk about him with uh, Lynn Novick and with Ken and Burns. And I just, I, I felt that I wanted to know from them. They've covered, you know, the Civil War. They've covered World War II. And I just wanted to know from them, like, what do I do with this history? I can't bring my uncle back. You know, I think that the film is just a beginning point. It's a, it is a starting point for us to have a much deeper conversation. And something I learned from talking to Ken and to Lynn was just, you know, we can embrace complexity. We can embrace complexity. Things are not, doesn't have to be black and white. Explanation doesn't have to be simple. So use the film as a place to start having even deeper conversations. What are you hoping to accomplish with this podcast, Second Wave, that you're doing? It's really personal. It's kind of taking on a topic from a, a different perspective than has probably been applied to it a lot of times. Like, what are you really hoping to do with this? Well, I think first and foremost, I did it for people like me who didn't really see our stories reflected in media. But I also think it's really important to look at the universal lessons and the fact that every person in America, somebody in our families came here from somewhere and we just forget that. And then all of a sudden, refugees and immigrants become the enemy and all of a sudden we're fearful of them, you know, and we got to stop that. And I think the only way to do that is to think about our own personal stories. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. The podcast is Second Wave. It's amazing. Everybody go check it out. Tan Tan, thanks for coming on Livewire. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market. 
who is committed to ensuring wild-caught seafood is held to standards of sustainability and animal welfare. Because raised well should be a compliment that applies to people and fish alike. Learn more at WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Livewire from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Uh, we're at the Neptune Theater in Seattle this week, and our theme is Hidden Talent. And we asked the crowd here at the Neptune uh, to tell us what their hidden talent is. And they filled out these little cards, and I have a stack of them. And I have to say, this is an incredibly talented group of people. <laughs> Most of the talents are not useful, but they are an incredibly talented bunch. Uh, Lauren who's here, says, uh, her hidden talent is ignoring people who text me. <laughs> I share that talent, Lauren. Uh, somebody named Yaya says their hidden talent is that they can pick the perfect piece of produce that is the ripest fruit every time. It's super useful, and it's awesome at parties. I'm trying to imagine a party wherein Yaya is wowing everybody with that skill. <laughs> like, does anybody have a cantaloupe? I'm about to amaze you. And then Catherine says, I'm the only person in my family who can tell when the dishes in the dishwasher are dirty or when they are clean. <laughs> you and my wife share that talent. I do not share that talent. So. And then I think it's Curtis says, uh, his hidden talent is, I'm incredible at catching small foods like grapes over great distances. Is Curtis here? <laughs> Curtis, where are you? Make yourself known. Can we get... Okay. Um, can we get uh, some grapes out here? <laughs> Curtis, this is not going to be good radio. But is this too far? Okay, go, go to the aisle. That's fine. And you need to have room to operate. Okay. Do you, do you want a lot of air under this? It's a grape. Can you see it from here? What if this was a peanut M&M? Your life would be in danger. <laughs> All right, here we go. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> Curtis, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Amazing. He caught it for those listening on the radio right now. Curtis, your talent is no longer hidden, my friend. That's amazing. All right. Our next guest is a director and sometimes actor who's single-handedly been keeping the Northwest film scene on the map with her films like Hump Day, Laggies, and Your Sister's Sister. She's also an in-demand TV director for shows like Mad Men, New Girl, and The Mindy Project. Her latest film is the truly incredible Outside In with Jay Duplass and Edie Falco, Please welcome the wonderful and the talented Lynn Shelton to Livewire. Hi, Luke. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the show. Um, Thanks. I just had a chance to watch Outside In. The, the plot is uh, Jay Duplass plays a guy who, who gets out of jail after 20 years, and he's trying to reintegrate into life. He's having a hard time doing it. Where'd the idea come from? How did this whole thing get started? Um, it really started because I wanted to work with a couple of actors, Jay being chief among them. So I'd sort of been trying to think of a role 
for him. And I've always been interested in relationships between two people that shouldn't really, on paper, shouldn't really work or shouldn't really seem inappropriate or, you know, but people have these soul connections. And so I was, um, I was just playing around with some ideas about how um, two people such as that um, might develop a, a true intimate relationship. And what the plot of this movie is, is that over the 20 year, he went into jail when he was like 18, like the day of graduation from high school, basically. And the, um, and the person who kept him going was his high school English teacher. And they had had a connection in high school. You know, she just, he, he was a you know, favorite student of hers and, and she thought that he might go somewhere. And his family just kind of falls by the wayside and she's really the one who kind of keeps him going in, and by first by sort of just giving him books to read and assignments to keep writing, sort of, you know, extending the English class that he was in with her. And so it very, it's very pedagogical at first and intellectual, and then it just becomes more and more intimate over 20 years, not intimate in romantic ways, just they just really confide in each other and become very close. So now he gets out of jail and he has to, he has one person that he's really fixated on, and it's her, and she's married and has a, you know, a family. And, and is so, considerably older than him. And, and is, as you said, it's uh, not a typical relationship uh, if they are to actually have a relationship, which you'll find out if you watch the film. Yeah. One of the things I thought you really nailed tonally with this was the kind of trepidation that people feel after they've been incarcerated for a long time. When I was a reporter, I did a story in Miami about a guy who had done like over 20 years on a charge for something he didn't do. And I went to a Denny's with him and his family the day he got out. And he looks at his daughter, he's this little old guy, and he looks at his daughter and he asks if he's allowed to have a refill of coffee because he had been so institutionalized, like he just couldn't deal with the outside world yet. And I think that Jay's character in the film really has that too. How did you get into the mind of somebody who's been incarcerated for two decades? Um, it was really Jay did the heavy lifting in that department. And he first he started out just on YouTube, you know, really watching interviews with guys and learning about guys, watching a lot of documentaries. And then he actually reached out and was able to actually connect to some guys who had been um, in, in that position and learned a lot. And, you know, the, the period of time, because the idea is he actually is getting out now, um, there's been so much technological shifting happening with smartphones and texting and all of these cultural things that we don't even think about anymore because we're just there we're so used to them so um, yeah it's a really intense time to come out into the world after having been you know out of it for a long time we have Lynn Shelton here uh, director and co-writer of the new film outside in I read somewhere that you, you've been working in the film industry as an editor and doing other things, but you had sort of had this dream of directing, but at some point you thought you had gotten too old for that, to be a first-time director. What inspired you to actually try it? I was actually at an event where a filmmaker that I really admired named Claire Denis, who's French, she was brought here and the Northwest Film Forum did a retrospective of her work and then there was an on-screen, on-stage interview with her and during the course of that interview I realized I was like doing the math when she said what year she had started as assistant director and then how old she was and I was like, she was 40 years old when she directed her first feature film. Oh my God, it's not too late. And I was so excited because A, she was a woman, but also she had started you know, later. And I was in my mid-30s at that point. And so I was like, I remember thinking, okay, I have like three years left. I can pull it together. I can still do this. because uh, There's you know, nothing more inspiring career. than like somebody getting into whatever you want to do at an older age than you currently are. Yes. And the opposite is also true. Like, it's just setting in that I'm not going to play in the NBA <laughs> because the oldest players are much younger than me. Um, did I also read right that you worked on a fishing boat for uh, a... 
in Alaska for a time while you were, I guess, what, supporting yourself as you were pursuing your film dreams? This was, yeah, a little even earlier than that, but yes. How was that? Oh, it was so much fun. I really recommend it. Three months uh, out in the Bering Sea, um, especially if you get motion sickness like I do. Uh, it's great. It's fantastic. It's really, really, really Were fun. you the only woman on the boat as well? Practically. Practically. That was fun, too. So, yeah, it was, it was a good time. For my version of that job was I worked for a plumbing company, uh, and my job was to take, there was a big pile of used fittings, and I would clean them and move them into a pile of clean fittings. And Were then, you rocking back and forth the entire time? No. And wanting to vomit? Because no. then it would have been similar. To okay, so yours was worse. You win, tip of the cap. But throughout my life after that, whenever I'm doing any job like this, we're sitting on stage talking, I'm always like, I could be in a basement in Greenwood cleaning plumbing fittings. Do you ever think that when you're like directing an episode of Mad Men or something? I could be in the Bering Sea having motion sickness. Yes, I do. I am so grateful. <laughs> Every single moment, yes, that I'm on set, I am very grateful that I am not, uh, yes, in the Bering Sea, exactly, covered in fish guts. I am. What's the hardest part of the job? And like, what is it about Lynn Shelton that you're able to bring to the table when you're trying to direct these, whether it's films or TV shows or whatever it might be? Honestly, I, I'm not super smart in a lot of ways, but one way I think that I like to think that I'm smart is emotionally. And uh, in college, I was always really attracted to psychology classes, and I've always been really interested in the way people's brains work. And so it's like, on Mad Men, I realized, because it was such a huge, that was my first TV job, and it was such a huge ensemble cast. Well, that's no pressure. Oh, my Your God. Your first TV directing job. It's <laughs> just a little show called Mad Men. <laughs> <It was> nuts. <laughs> yeah, that was insane. Um, and every single one of those actors, I realized, had a completely different process. And I realized, I got this image that it was like, it's like there's a little drawer filled with all these keys of different shapes and sizes, and you have to find the right key to fit the right person, you know, to figure out how best to make them feel like they can unlock their best performance. And I feel like I'm at my best as a director if I'm curating everybody else's genius. Does that make sense? You're sort of corralling. It's a little bit like being the leader of a band. You know, you're kind of like inviting everybody to contribute, and then you have to sort of curate and figure out exactly how it's all going to fit together. Do you think any uh, part of that aptitude is because you got into this a little bit later than other people? I do. I don't think I could have done it. Uh, uh, when, when I got on my first movie set, I remember feeling like I'd never felt before, ever. I, I remember feeling like this is what I was always meant to do. And at the same time, I couldn't have done it before this. I couldn't have done this when I was 25. For, for me, I needed all that time to get comfortable in my own skin before I could actually, yeah, do that particular job. Uh, you've made a series of these really great films um, that are not about traditional topics. Um, you know, it's two guys who are trying to win a contest and they may hook up or may not. Uh, and, and like the subject matter of Outside In. And yet we live in a world where almost every big movie is now based on a pre-existing concept. It's either like a comic book character or God help us emojis. Have you, do you have any ideas, any development ideas for or have you been tempted to try to adapt like an existing thing ever just because you're like, well, this could be a hit film? So you're, just, you're wondering if I'm going to go for trying to make another version of the Flintstones movie? What, I don't is that know. what you're working on? <laughs> yes, is it is. Is that breaking news? It's so funny you should bring that up. Yeah. 
So that's um, like not for you. Like if they came to you and they wanted you to direct a big budget film that was maybe going to be creatively less interesting, but it'd be kind of good feather in your cap. Would you consider something like that? Feather in my cap? <laughs> oh my God. Um, I guess, let me ask the question maybe <laughs> with less feather in my cap references. You're making these really honest, really interesting films. Do I want to make a one for <laughs> two feathers in my cap? Um, yeah, that's the question. <laughs> Would you consider making a film for sure. two feathers in your cap? <laughs> Only for two, though. Um, I, I realized, and a lot of this is because of television, because I've now directed two pilots, one that actually happened and one that didn't get picked up. So I've worked with really large sets and large budgets. So I'm very comfortable at all different levels and sizes of that. Um, so that doesn't intimidate me. It really, it's all about the content, you know. And so if there was a Brokeback Mountain, you know, or some movie that, that was a big budget and that actually was a script that really just, like, knocked me off my feet, I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, it doesn't, the, bu the budget level doesn't matter. It's just, it's just the material has to be, I have to be passionate about it. Because it takes, as the director, you spend a really, really long time on a movie. And just so, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And life's too short to do something that you're not fully passionate about, for me anyway. What about, uh, like, Flintstones broke back crossover that was... <laughs> Broke Rock Mountain, I wish I could quit you, Barney. Oh, God! For three feathers, would <laughs> you consider it? Three and a half. All right, that's All right. fair. Done. Lynn Shelton, Done. everybody. Her new film is Outside In. Thank you. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Our next guest is a hidden talent in that he's like an iceberg, and he's only letting us see a little bit of how amazingly good he is this week. He's a stand-up comic an Emmy-winning writer on The Jim Jeffries Show. He also co-hosted the wonderfully named podcast Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period, along with W. Kamau Bell. Please welcome the hilarious Kevin Avery to Livewire. Kevin, welcome to Livewire. You wrote and starred in a short film called Thugs a Musical. Yes. Which I watched some of. Describe how something called Thugs a Musical actually works. It, well, it, this was happening to me. When I lived in San Francisco and I was auditioning, I would get all these calls for like, um, you know, we want you to be like a gangster rapper. We want you to be this. And I literally went in for the role of a thug. They were doing this thing at the time where we're looking for real faces. We don't want actors. We want real people. And so I showed up, and I think there were real thugs in the waiting room. And I was like, oh, I don't think, you know, I'm there with my headshot. Hey, how's everyone doing? You know, obviously, I didn't get the job. Uh, 
But I, I wrote this thing about sort of that experience, this black actor who's he's sort of oblivious and he's tired of not getting the roles that his other contemporary black actors are getting. So he decides he's gonna showcase himself to show the world he can act black. And he creates this disastrous play called Thugs the Musical. And it's, it's like songs like, you know, Who's That Keeping It Real? And uh, <laughs> Oh No She Didn't. So it's a lot of fun. We, to we use fun. a very reductive comparison, it's sort of Boys in the Hood meets Waiting for Guffman. Yes, I like that. Is that, our, is that an okay way to describe I like, it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. When you're trying to make it and the call sheet is for something that is just like a not great stereotype... How do you like? How do you reconcile that? Because you also got to eat and you got to work, and that sometimes that, maybe that's the job. Yeah, it's it's not a thing that I deal with now because I'm not auditioning all the time. So I, you know, at the time, yeah, it was just I was a guy trying to get work and trying to get started. And I do remember my thinking, like for this particular part, they wanted a puff daddy gangster rapper type. Not the same thing. Yeah, I don't think. Puff Daddy is really a gangster yeah. rapper. But those were the words as they a starting used. point. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Do you think that was written by a white person? Is it possible that casting uh, notice was no. written by a white person? I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I, but I ju- my thinking was, well, I used to rap, so I can do that. I'll just sag the jeans a little bit, go out there, and you know, and it was a disaster. But uh, you know, it just didn't it didn't work for me. But that was the lesson I had to take from that: is like every time you try to be something you're not, it comes through, and it's very obvious. And then you you don't get that that part or that job or or whatever it is. And so that's what Thugs was all about, really, is sort of the idea of finding the thing that is you, and you know, going down that road as opposed to trying to fit yourself into a box that you know you don't fit into. You wrote on Last Week's Night with John Oliver. You write on the Jim Jeffries show. When you're writing on a show, well, like, how about in 2017, with the world the way it is, and in particularly the political climate in the U.S. like it is, what is it like in a writer's room these days? Like, is it pressure? Uh, I don't think there's a lot of pressure. I just think it never stops, and so you don't have time to think about it. I mean, it's depressing. I remember there was a huge shift uh, in everything on John Oliver's show when Trump became the president. Actually, before then, um, you know, as we were deep in the election because he just kept doing stuff that we were like, oh, we, we gotta talk about this now. I guess, okay, I guess we're crashing everything, we're throwing that away, and we're, you know, and so, you know, I don't think there's pressure. I just think this is what we were already doing, and now we have this guy and this environment that's constantly sort of feeding us stuff that we kind of have to to put out there and have to talk about and and so that's yeah that's what is it a good time to be writing comedy because there's a like a lot going on uh, you know <laughs> it was a better time before when we were happy <laughs> when everyone was like oh god comedy comedy sucks oh <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I mean, that's the thing, the conventional thing is like, oh, I bet this makes your job easier. No, it's a nightmare because I have to think about it every day. I can't just, uh, you know, like walk away from it. it you're, you're living in it. It's ever present in your life. And so that's, that's a bummer, you know. You and Kamal Bell hosted a podcast called Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period. Yes. Uh, where'd that name come from? Well, you know, 
we were wondering, like, is he okay? I think he's all right. I don't know. Maybe we should probably push it to the maximum just in case he wants to come on the show. Uh, was yeah, it, we was the just, name a way to try to get him to come we on? Were, <laughs> yes. No, that was because I think it backfired. I think Denzel is the type of guy who is like, I'm not co-signing that crime. Are you kidding me? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We, we, he, we never had him on the show. We ended it before he, he uh, came on. But we, he, That's Kamau a good way to I, look at it, by the way. The show ended... Before he came on, not yes. that he never came on the show during its existence. Yeah, before he was, yeah. Denzel was like, I'm on my way. And we were like, oh, sorry, we just closed shop, Denzel. Yeah. Sorry, Denny. Uh, but we were just big fans of Denzel. And Kamau and I used to be roommates. And so we would talk about like pop culture and movies all the time. And Denzel always came up. And, you know, we had a mutual love of this, this actor. Sort of with all the things we disagree about, that was one thing we sort of agreed about was like, this guy, we can talk about this guy, we have a lot to say. And it was a lot of fun to sort of meet all these other people who'd worked with him and all these other actors who also admired him and had stories to tell about him. And so, yeah, it just turned into like a really fun thing for us. Did he know about the podcast? It had to be on his radar, right? (laughs) Here's the thing. (laughs) He was kind of playing it cool because... I ran into him after, in L.A. after he was speaking somewhere. And so I mentioned it, and he was like, yeah, I don't remember. And then he, Kamau's name clicked, and he was like, wait, yeah, I've heard about this dude on the Internet talking about me. Yeah, I know what's up with that. And I was like, okay, so he's kind of heard about it. Cut to a few months later, someone in an interview asking him about, you know, hey, there's a podcast called Denzel Washington, greatest actor of all time, period. Have you heard of it? No. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> he like, played, come he on, Denzel. Yeah, he Denzel. Were you tempted to uh, try to get him to come on the show? In that instant, I just wanted to say hi. and Right. And, because here's the thing. When you meet the persons you've always admired, and then you talk to them about just some casual stuff, then you just feel cool. Yeah. Shooting the breeze with this, you know, with and this And that's person. more important yeah. than getting him on your podcast. Uh, is yeah. The fact now you have a story. In Denzel's mind, he's like, oh, I met this guy, Kevin. He was pretty cool. It was cooler just to, like, exchange words with him and yeah. then be like, all right, bye. And literally, it was this weird sort of magical moment where he, we walked a few feet and then he got into the elevator to go down to the garage. And so I was talking to him as the doors were shutting and he was like, all right, man, say goodbye. And I was like, yeah, bye, Denzel. See you later. <laughs> just magically the door appeared and he just went down and it was like wow and then he's gone and it's suddenly pitch it's dark and no one's around to see it like that's the thing i was like did anyone see no did anyone where's everybody and i was just left standing outside on the street corner in la like it never happened i i'm gonna choose to believe it really happened and i'm glad that this this radio show could bear witness to that well thank you yes kevin avery everybody Look for his comedy, check out the Jim Jeffries show, and go find Thugs a Musical as well. Thanks, yeah. man. Thanks a lot, man. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, this week on the podcast, we would like to thank some very special members. Of course, I'm talking about Pat Thulis of Norway, Michigan, and Edith Vickers of Portland, Oregon. It is support from members like Pat and Edith that help make Livewire possible. So thank you so much. You really mean that. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. (laughs) 
I found out about this hour's musical guest uh, during a recent cross-country flight. He was being interviewed on one of the in-flight TV channels, and I was so blown away that I bought the Wi-Fi on the flight so I could email our producers and ask if we could get him on the show. And it was like the best $23 I've ever spent. Because here he is. He's a Grammy-nominated slack-key guitar master all the way from Hawaii. Please welcome Makana to Livewire. Makana, welcome to the show. Mahalo. When did you start playing slack key? I started playing slack key guitar, which is an indigenous style to Hawaii, back when I was about 11 years old. I'm 39 now. And that must have made you like the youngest slack key guitar player like in the world? It did at the time. Thankfully, there's one younger guy now because it was starting to feel like a big burden in case I got conked on the head or something, the whole style would be gone. You were the keeper of the flame, but now there's one other person keeping the flame. Yes, and he's great. So we, we are so happy when young people pick up this music. What's the background on this? Like this style of music, where did it come from? What was the, the goal with it? So slack key guitar uh, was created, uh, started back in the late 1800s. And basically what it's, it's called slack key because we literally slack or loosen the keys to a chord. By tuning the guitar to a chord, which other styles do, that frees up the fretting hand. And with the picking hand, this is what makes Hawaiian slack key, or as Hawaiians call it, kihoalu, unique, is there's an alternating bass line. And over that, a melody, something like this. And then you play the bass and the melody at the same time. That looked really hard. What was, uh, is part of the origin of this uh, trying to make a sound that's bigger than just one instrument? Um, no. In the olden days, in the late 1700s, Captain Vancouver, he shows up in Hawaii, he gifts King Kamehameha four cattle and a bull. King Kamehameha puts a kapu on them, which means he makes them untouchable, kind of like how they are in India. So they start to multiply. They multiply and multiply. And they start to become a problem because back in those days, Hawaiians built their houses out of grass. And the cattle were eating all the grass. So they were running out of building materials. So basically... What happened to your house? Somebody ate it. Yeah. That it was, was a common conversation that would have it happened was, at It that was time. bad, but it was in Hawaiian. Yeah. And so... Yeah, So, anyway... Uli, and I'll give you a free trip to Hawaii if you can say that right now. Can you say it one more time, or no. is that my one chance? No, that was it. Kaikiauli? Close. Ah, we're going to have to sacrifice Can I now. go coach? <laughs> <laughs> you can go on the Lurleen. Okay. Okay. So, Kaikiauli, he enlists the help of the vaqueros. The vaqueros come, they were cowboys from the West Coast, and they teach the Hawaiians what we now call the art of paniolo, or the Hawaiian cowboy. Meanwhile, they bring the guitars late at night. They sit by the campfire. So this tuning right here. Now, the, the popular uh, myth is that, oh, they just forgot to teach the Hawaiians how to tune. But I don't think that's what happened. I think they actually adapted and they exchanged. And the Hawaiians eventually started to figure out how to play because there was only one guitar maybe in a whole part of the island. 
how to play all the parts themselves. Wow. A lot of your career I've learned from this Boing Boing TV interview that I watched that I was so taken with, but I got the sense that you've been approached by people to play more like mainstream music, if you will. Like you, you could very well have a career being a pop singer or something, a pop performer. Um, and you'd probably make a bunch of money doing that and maybe be famous or whatever. But why, why have you declined that? Why are you sticking with slack key guitar? So when I was 18, I got flown to L.A. by the management of Kiss and Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses. And, um, you know, it was like a scene from, like, Have a Cigar, the Pink Floyd song. Well, son, you know, I live in Malibu on the water, and there's only one album I take home. It's your album, and we think we can make you a pop star. And so I had a question for him. I said, what about my slack key guitar? And he was honest. He said, there's no money in that. And because Uncle Sonny, one of the great masters of slack key guitar, Sonny Chillingworth, had taught me when I was 13. I was his last student, and then he died. I felt what Hawaiians call a kuleana, a responsibility. And I'd seen enough of those VH1 documentaries where I was like, right. I don't want to end up like uh, Vanilla Ice, you know? So <laughs> I, I just decided I'm going to do He's redoing my a way. backsplash somewhere oh. in Tampa right now. <laughs> Literally, he has a TV God. show where he fixes up houses, but I don't see that being your style, Makana. No, I'm not good with a hammer. Um, and I tell young artists this is no one can make or break you you can make or break yourself and so to this day it's such an honor and a privilege like tonight right now to introduce this art form to you folks i'm honored to be able to do that well we're excited to have you here uh, what are you going to play i'm going to play uh, a slack key guitar piece that's original this is something called koi this is makana on livewire
That's Makana right here on Livewire. His latest album is Music You Heard Tonight. And you can find out more at makanamusic.com. That's going to do it for our show. A huge thanks to our guests, Lynn Shelton, Kevin Avery, Ton Tan, and Makana. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Big thanks this show to the folks at STG and at the Neptune Theater. Additional thanks to Arvid Hokanson, Lisa Wong, Timmy Dolan, and all of our dear friends over at KUOW. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Chris Gibbs did our house sound. And Jason Powers did our recording and mixing. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing director. And our operations manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Steve Berard of Seattle, Washington for his support. For more information about the show, how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.